Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. I become less so that you can become more. I pray that you would move me out of the way this morning, that you would be glorified in all that we discuss this morning. I pray for the congregation. We pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive, minds to understand. We pray, God, that as your love is described for us this morning, that we would be overwhelmed and overcome by your great love. Lord, we bow our knee before your word this morning and submit to all that it says. Change us. Make us who you want us to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Thank you for joining us on this on this Lord's Day as we continue again our exposition of the Gospel of John. The last time that we were together, we were given a glimpse into the, the final plea from the Lord Jesus Christ to the crowds to come and believe. John chapter 12, verse 36, he says to them, while you have light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. After this final plea or final invitation of the Lord, we saw in verse 36 that Christ departed and hid himself from the people. This departure, as we talked about last time, and concealing of himself signified that Jesus would no longer offer himself to the people as he had done in the past. The people had been given every opportunity to believe in him. They had seen all the signs that pointed to who Christ was. They had heard all of the words that pointed to who Christ was. And now Jesus Christ is done. We saw that this meant that Jesus Christ intentionally left some people in their unbelief. He was not, as it has been told to us, hopelessly knocking at the door of the hearts of unbelievers, hoping that they will open the door for him and let him in. Rather, he was leaving those unbelieving dead in their tombs as he passed by them. There were some who completely did not believe, not because they were not given enough signs and not because they did not hear the right words. Those who did not believe in Christ did not believe in Christ for one divine reason, because God did not allow them to believe. God was sovereignly Involved in not allowing them to believe. And as hard as that is for some of us to to believe and to accept, it is the fulfillment of prophecy, the prophecy of Isaiah. He tells us about it in verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe for Isaiah said he God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Those who would not believe did not believe because they could not believe. And then there were those who said they believed, but really did not believe because of the fear that they had of men and the glory that they loved to receive from men. So they said with their mouths that they believed in Christ or they believed in some kind of nominal way that they believed in Christ. But they would not confess it out loud for fear that they would inflict, be inflicted with some kind of persecution. We learned last week that this is not true belief. This may even be worse 
than those who say that they believe because they have some form of truth and yet they refuse to acknowledge it. They have some they have been exposed to some form of truth and they know it's true, but yet they refuse to submit to it. That's more dangerous than I think not believing in truth altogether. The danger is having some form of truth and knowing it's truth and refusing to accept it as true, meaning bow your knee in light of that truth. This obviously this often happens when people don't value Christ as he should be valued. And what a tragedy that is. But Christ has called sinners out of darkness. That's the purpose of his coming. He's called those who were in darkness to come into his light. He has called though he has come to save those who are his. And he has commanded all of those who belong to him to come to him. They are a gift from the father, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And now at this moment, Christ departs and he conceals himself. He's aware of the time. He's aware that his death is now drawing near. As a matter of fact, the death of Christ at this point in time is only 24 hours away. And what does Christ do? He begins to draw away from the crowds and he begins to draw closer to his disciples or he begins to draw his disciples, disciples closer to himself. And in the next five chapters, the Apostle John is going to give us a glimpse into the the intimacy that Christ has with his disciples during the last moments of his life. And that deep intimacy is clearly displayed for us in the, the, the 13th chapter, which we're looking at this morning, in a way that his disciples could have never anticipated, in a way that his disciples could have never expected. We are going to see this morning the love of Christ and Christ the servant. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 13. Verse number one. If you do not have Bibles, we have Bibles available in the back. If you'd like to grab one. Verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Christ Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end during supper when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of his disciples and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. We're going to stop there. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Have a seat this morning. I'd like you to think for just a moment. What is love? Think about how you would describe love to someone if they were to ask you, what is love? As the question is asked, many of you may be thinking of different ways to define or describe something that we have all felt at one point in our lives. Love. Some of you automatically may be thinking of the passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude, etc., etc. Some of you may be thinking of other descriptions. Some of you may be thinking it's an emotion. 
And it is. It's one of the most basic emotions that a human being could feel. It's the butterflies. It's the hand sweats. It's the the loss of words. It's artistic. It's been portrayed for us in the arts of film, described for us in the arts of music. It's powerful. It has the power to overcome evil. It's quick to forgive. It holds no record of wrongs. It is when you are just as concerned with someone else's situation as you are about your own situation. It's supposed to cover and ease the pain. It's so special that once it has been given, it's never forgotten. This may be how some of you have described love. And love, as we know, has often been a word that is overused So much overused that it's lost the weight and the value with which it carries, right? Sometimes it's often used too soon. Sometimes it's often used too carelessly. Love is something that we can become sad about or even something that we can become cynical about. I don't believe in love. At our best, people tend to think that love is how we speak to one another or how we treat one another. Some kind of human virtue. Others believe that we can't help the ones that we love and that we can love whoever we'd like to love. For some people, when they hear the words, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. When they hear those words, they hear a lot of different things. Some don't hear anything at all. So it is vitally important that when we come to the word this morning, we allow the word of God To tell us exactly and describe for us exactly what love really is. After three years, three and a half years, Jesus is going to lay out his love for his disciples more clearly than he had ever done at any point in time up until that moment in his ministry. Jesus is going to show them that he is going to love them. And listen to how. To the very end. Up until that point, they had no idea as to what the end was. Imagine that. This is Jesus. This is my teacher. This is my master, my follower, or the person I follow. This is going to last forever. And they are sitting at this meal. And they're hearing Jesus say consistently and constantly, as of late, the hour has now come. What does he mean by this hour? What is this hour? This hour is the end. And though they did not know it and could not perceive it, the end was happening before their very eyes. Some of you may have experienced that kind of of departure in your lives where you didn't realize it, you didn't know it, but all of a sudden the end suddenly came upon you. Jesus has made it abundantly clear that this is the hour. But So far, as far as they were concerned, that hour, in that hour, nothing much has happened. It's a normal hour to them. This is the last night that they will be with Jesus before their world, as they know it, came crashing down. They have gathered for a meal. Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, we find in verses 21 through 30 that Jesus has gathered with his disciples to, to celebrate the Passover meal. If you're wondering what that meal might have looked like, I want you to get a picture of this. This meal is in an upper room lit with candles. 
The meal would be served at a low table in the middle of the room. The food would be sliced so that you only need your right hand when you're eating. The guest would recline on couches, leaning on their left elbow and eating with their right hand. Their heads would be near the table and their feet would be pointing outward. The guest of honor would be sitting to the right of the host. He would be the one who could most easily, the host, and privately speak to the guest of honor simply by turning his head or by leaning back. This is a picture of their feast. And as we continue or begin this morning, I want us to look at during this this setting, the love of Christ. Verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father. Listen now, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them. To the end. What a a weighty and powerful verse that the Holy Spirit used the Apostle John to pen. Knowing that his hour had come to depart out of this world. This time has come. We have been in the book of John for the past almost two years now. And what we saw from the very first verse in the book of John, if you would turn there, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That verse describes God prior to or Christ prior to the incarnation. This is God or Christ in eternity past. This is Christ when there is no time and space. This is where Christ is dwelling in the Godhead in perfect unity, in perfect fellowship, needing nothing, wanting nothing. And verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. From that moment in eternity past to the moment when the incarnation of the word of God became flesh to this moment that we are approaching right now, the hour, there has been a great anticipation. All of creation has been groaning for that particular moment when the God man, the Lord Jesus Christ would leave glory incarnate into the flesh of humanity and then come to that particular hour, this hour that we're speaking of right now on a mission for a particular purpose. You must know that that hour that we are talking about right now was not an hour that Jesus suddenly realized as he was walking around in Nazareth. Oh, I think this is why I'm here. This is not an hour that that came upon Jesus as some kind of sudden epiphany. Jesus has come on a mission. He says in John 12, 27, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Listen now from the foundations of the world in eternity past. God, the father made a covenant with God, the son to do what? To prepare for him a bride. Before there was you or me, before there was heavens and earth, before there was anything in all of creation except for God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit. There was a covenant between God, the father and God, the son, a covenant of redemption that God, the father would prepare for God, the son, a bride and that the son would go and redeem his bride. This is the covenant that the father made with the son. Again, if you're taking notes, it's called a covenant of redemption. Redemption. 
It was a covenant among the persons of the Godhead. In this covenant, the son, the bridegroom, the, the, the groom of the bride was sent by the father on a mission. Christ came to fulfill that mission. And that mission was not given to him in a manger. That mission was not even given to him at his baptism. He had this mission before his incarnation and before the foundations of the world were even established. Christ knew and was coming after you who trust and believe and who have repented in faith in Christ. When he, while in perfect unity within the, the Godhead of the Father, Son of the Holy Spirit, enjoyed perfect fellowship, again, needed nothing, wanted nothing, but only for the perfect, for the good will and perfect pleasure of God the Father, did God send his Son, the Word that would become flesh, to go and accomplish a great mission to take his bride. In the great uh, canonic hymn of Philippians chapter 2, we are given a glimpse into this great wonder. Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men and being found in, in human form. Listen, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. In this passage, we see the willingness of the son to, the, to answer the call of God, the father, and to undertake the mission of redemption. We see that Jesus perfectly obeyed the will of the father and obeyed the will of the father was obeying the will of the father was the meat and the drink of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it was his sustenance. It's what sustained him doing the will of God. And from the time of his youth, when his parents were looking all over for him, Luke, uh, Luke 2, 9 tells us, 249 tells us that he was busy being about the father's business to the repeated moments when Jesus, Jesus declared that he did not speak on his own authority, but only what he was told by the Father to speak. Christ was the first missionary. And as he came on a mission to glorify the Father, he came from the glory of heaven to the slum of earth. And he was sent by the Father, yes. But the point of the, of the covenant of redemption is that the Son willingly came to save a people for himself. He was not coerced by the father to lay down his glory and to be subjected to humiliation. But rather, the Lord Jesus Christ willingly made himself of no reputation. The son agreed to lay down his life for the eternal glory of God. For the sake of the salvation of many. He loved them to the end. The son will soon pray in John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And now. The hour has come. If you can if you can get that, that from eternity past. All through the creation of the world, the fall of man, Adam and Eve. Noah, 
Abraham, David, Solomon, the prophets, John the Baptist, and now the hour has come. The hour has come. And it has been anticipated from the moment that the covenant of redemption was made between the God man or God, the son and God, the father to this particular time right now. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The questions you should be asking about this passage is this. And they are obvious. Whom has Christ loved? And how has he loved them? The answer to the first question is clear. He's loved his own who were in the world. Let us also be clear of who of whom Christ has not loved. He has not loved every single person in the entire world without exception. Instead, Scripture says that he has loved his own out of the world. One may say, but I thought for God so loved the world. God loved the world that he could draw men and women out of the world and unto himself. So who has Christ loved? He's loved his own. He has called a particular people out of the world and unto himself. He has loved a particular people with a particular salvific, saving kind of love. Why? For his own goodwill, his own good pleasure to the glory of God. That's why. And God has given and, and given him a people that are his own. They are the peculiar, particular property of the Lord Jesus Christ that the Father has given the Son. And friends, if you have repented and trusted in Christ, then you are a part of that particular people. If you have repented and trusted in Christ and placed your faith in him alone, then you are a part of that peculiar, particular people that Christ has called out of the world and unto himself. You are a special member. If you have repented and trusted in Christ, you are a, you are a special member of his body. You are his sheep, his own sheep, those whom Christ has loved to the end. How has he loved them? The Bible says he loved them to the end. There may not be a better description of how one loves to the end. Christ has loved them to the very end. Imagine through all of the things that they have done. And we'll see in just a moment all the things that they are going to do. Christ will still love them to the end. Preserve them to the end. He has for many of you been loving you and will continue to love you until the end. And what does all of that entail? The things that you have done, the things that you will do, the things that you have said, the things that you have thought. And yet Christ, who has called you as his own, has made a promise that he will love you until the end. People don't love like that anymore, do they? They love you until something happens or they love you. But let's see what happens. There is not a faithful commitment like that of Christ that says, I will love you until the end. Again, the disciples don't know that they are approaching the end. The domino effects of the end will soon begin to, be, to come tumbling down. Their teacher will be captured. And they will scatter and flee. Christ will be tried and convicted. And they will hide for their lives. All that they have known for the past three and a half years will seemingly be lost. They have no idea what awaits them. But Jesus does. Jesus knows those who are going to betray him. The one Jesus knows those who will flee from him, those who will deny him. 
Jesus knows those who will try him, those who will pull his beard and punch him in the face, those who will stab him with a spear, those who will put spikes on his head, those who will hang him to the cross. He knows every single moment that's going to happen. And he knows that these 12 or 11, though they may flee for now, he will no less continue to love them until the end. What a love that the son has for those who are his home. He has loved them to the end. He's loved them at, uh, to the uttermost or as Alistair Begg puts it, he loves them with love stretched out. Christ will display just how much he he loves these people perfectly by showing his disciples the most perfect act of service before he suffers. And I would like you to consider for this moment Christ's love just for a moment before we get into that. It's simple. It's a point that I pray you never lose sight of for the rest of your days. And here's this point. That Christ loves you. I'll say it again, just in case it went over your head. That Christ loves you. You who he has called to be his own. You that he has called by name. You who have repented and trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. Let me say to you, if you've not heard it in a long time, and let me ask you to remind yourself of this. That Christ loves you. You are his sheep. You are his own. Feel the weight of that great statement. And oh, the amount of times that we have heard that love in our ears. That Christ loves us. Yes, without truly understanding the meaning of that great love, the height, the depth and the weight of that great love. The love of Christ for his own is so great and so deep that even the Apostle Paul assures us in Romans 838. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angel angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What an amazing thought. What an amazing thought that altogether Jesus loves and no less loves you. Don't you know you? Don't you know who you are? Don't you know the thoughts that you've had, the things that you've done, the things that you would like to do? And yet Christ loves you. You. He has chosen to love you, you who could not choose to love him on your own. He has given you first love. The Bible says in first John four, nine, we love because he first loved us. If it was not for Christ initiating love toward us, then we would have no love toward him. And why did he love you? Let me tell you or tell ask you to remind yourself again. You know, you. There was nothing lovely in you or me that would cause the love of Christ to be directed toward us. When there was nothing deserving about us, nothing lovely about us, Christ 
shows his love to us. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Don't ever get tired or don't ever not be in awe of that great truth. When there was nothing loving about you, Christ died for you. When you did not want Christ, Christ chose you. When you were dead in your sin and trespasses, Christ died for you. When you were an evil rebel and hated God and cursed his name, Christ died for you. While we were still weak, the Bible says, at the right time, God died for not the godly, not the loving, not the perfect, not the beautiful, but for the ungodly, the godless. It was not anything that you had accomplished. It was not anything that you had did that caused Christ to die for you. It was pure love and mercy and grace that Christ gave to you. And this is mind blowing. That God gives to you love that you don't deserve and love that you can't pay back. You, uh, an unloving, ungodly person, God chooses you and say, I give you as a love gift to my son. Me? Why me? And in light of the undeserved love that has been granted to us, we so often take it for granted. In light of the, the undeserving love that has been granted to us, we, we so often take it for granted. We, we pray that God would give us a special sermon so that we can be fired up again. We pray that God would give us a special song so that we can be excited again. Or take me to a conference so that I can get revved up again. Or give me an activity so that I can stay busy. What we're saying is, help me not fall out of love with you. Do you need someone to yet? Do you need Paul Washer? For those of you who love Paul Washer, for whatever your reasons are. To convict you once again. Do you need someone to come and, and, and beat you up with the word in order for you to feel like I do need to love him? I do need to be more passionate about God again. Is that what you need? Or do you merely need to read John 13, 1? That he loved his own and that he loved them to the end. Do you need a song to make you cry? Do you need an activity to keep you busy? Or do you merely need to be reminded that there was nothing good or loving about you and yet God chose to love you? That's enough for me, my friend. So put on your Paul Washers, put on your John MacArthur's and your John Piper's and let them fire you up once again. But the only thing that's keeping you is the love of Christ that has been shown toward you. And the Holy Spirit that is actively working in you to preserve and keep you. No, you don't need another sermon. You don't need another song. You don't need an activity. You need to be reminded of the love of God that was shown to you when you deserved death. How many times does our love for Christ wax cold while his love for us is a flaming fire. How many times have we ignored and rejected his love? Brothers and sisters, let us not spurn the love of God that has been expressed to us who have repented and believed as if this love was a cheap thing or a cheap garment that we could toss aside. First Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, 
but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a of a lamb without blemish or spot. And friends, if you have repented and trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, this love that we are talking about this morning is directed toward you. It's yours in Christ. And Paul declares that it is so great, so valuable, so vast that the love of Christ surpasses even our very own understanding. The cross, brothers and sisters, is the apex of the love of Christ for his own. But the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is about to be expressed in a way that his disciples could have never and would have never expected or even anticipated. Number two. Christ, the servant. Verse two. During supper. When the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin. And began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In the city of Jerusalem, near the temple, the streets would be cleaner than they would be out in the country. So even if you had just come from a bath, your feet would still need to be washed. And a good host would make sure that your feet were washed when you entered into their home. This would be a matter of honor and a matter of cleanliness. Mary was the one who took the the posture of a servant in John chapter 12 when she anointed the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. The washing of feet was usually reserved, though, for the servant of the house. The lowliest person in that house. If there was no servant. Then either the host would wash the feet of his guest or the guest would wash their own feet if the host was not a good host. Anything to do with dirty, stinking feet was seen for those who were at the bottom of the totem pole, though. When John the Baptist was asked if he was the Messiah, here's his response. I am so far from the Messiah that I am not even worthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah. Untying of the sandals was reserved for Low servants. John the Baptist understood his position and said, I'm not even at that level that I could untie his shoes to wash his feet. This is how low he understood himself to be his position before Christ. When the crowds that once came to Christ or once came to John the Baptist began to go to Jesus, his response, John the Baptist's response was this. He must increase. But I must decrease. So why would Jesus do this for his disciples? What was the point of this act of washing the feet of his disciples? Remember this. We must not ignore what the other gospels tell us concerning what was happening at this particular moment. And the Bible tells us in the book of Acts or the book of Luke that there is something going on while this meal is happening. There's a discussion that's happening during this meal. And it's a discussion that should not surprise sinful people. Actually, it's a surprise that maybe would surprise sinful people, but it's not a a, a surprise to the Lord Jesus Christ because there's a dispute among the disciples. And guess what the dispute is about? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded 
as the greatest. Now, can you imagine? Christ is approaching the final hours of his life. Those whom he has poured his life into for the past three and a half years are sitting around him and he's loving them to the end. And as they are sitting around him, they begin to have like little children, a fight, a dispute. And what is the dispute about? Of all things, no less. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Who will be remembered among them the most? And if you can imagine the scene, they're all reclining at this dinner and the discussion begins. Now, why it began, nobody knows. But let's take two guesses. It may have arisen based on, on the fact that, that who was seating, based upon who was seating closest to Christ. It may have arisen that those who were sitting closest to Christ may have thought that that daddy loves them the most. Those of you who have multiple kids know how that probably is. But here's what I think it may, may have happened. I think it may have arisen because apparently no one had washed anyone's feet. And the way that they sit, everyone's dirty feet was in the next person's dirty or other face. And there may have been at some point when someone says, hey, you need to wash your feet. Maybe you should wash my feet. And then they start to argue with one another as to who should wash each other's feet because they all think that one is greater than the other. And as they're having the discussion about, like little kids, about who's the best and whose feet, who should wash whose feet, the Lord Jesus Christ stands up. And he begins to take off his outer garments. And as the discussion is going on, or the argument is going on, if you can imagine them pointing to one another, I can call down fire from heaven, I cast out certain demons. All of a sudden, Jesus quietly stands up. And as they're arguing, they, they begin to notice the Lord Jesus begin to take off his outer garments. What is he doing? He can't be doing what I think he's doing. He is doing what I think he's doing. And brothers and sisters, think about this for just a moment. Think about what he's about to do and to whom he's about to do it to. This is the final hour. It is the last time that Christ will be with his disciples in this context. And what is he about to do and who is he about to do it for? You may think, well, he's about to do it for his disciples. Wait a minute. There's also someone that the Bible mentioned whose heart has already been filled with Satan. Jesus is about to wash the feet of one whose heart is controlled by Satan. And in just a few minutes, one who would betray the only sinless man to ever live so that he could be delivered up and crucified. He's about to perform an act that was meant for the lowliest of servants, for his disciples. Yes, the creator of the universe was going to wash the feet of his creation. And can you imagine as he's standing there or as he's going from person to person, can you imagine the shame, the, 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 the rebuke and the painful silence that must have filled the room as these men who were fighting over who should wash each other's feet and who was the greatest was now being washed. Their feet were, their feet were now being washed by the greatest. The act for the lowliest was being done by the greatest. Can you imagine? Lord, please get up. I'll, I'll clean the rest. That's good, Lord. I'll, I'll take care of the rest. Oh, you missed a spot. No, I'll take care of it. And as he goes to each and every single person and washes their feet, he finally arrives at the feet. And you can see him from the bottom looking up. 
at the feet of his betrayer. And does he do what we would have done? I ain't washing your feet, bro. You need to get out of here. Go on. I know what you're about to do. Go ahead. Leave. No, he takes those sinful, treacherous feet that are going to, in just a few moments, be swift to betray him. Can you imagine the gentle touch of Christ as he begins to wash the feet of his betrayer? And can you imagine the eyes of the betrayer that his heart has been filled with Satan looking at Christ with the hatred that is about to be expressed in betrayal in just a few moments? And yet, what does he do? He washes and he dries and he moves on to the next man. What humility from our Savior, from our Savior. What service from the one who has called you to, his, to himself. Jesus said, the greatest among you shall be your servant, uh, Matthew twenty three eleven. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Christ was the supreme example of this great truth. He said in Matthew twenty twenty eight, the son of man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the attitude of Christ. And it, it is the same mind or same attitude that Paul has encouraged the followers of Christ to have. Not to serve yourself, not to seek gain for yourself, not to seek position for yourself, not to do as the world is telling you to do, to step on others so that you could get ahead. But to let others be first, knowing that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Being a servant and Paul encourages the church of Philippi in Philippians 2, 4. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Jesus said in the, on the on the Sermon on the Mount, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who do evil to you so that you may heap burning coals on their head. Bless those who curse you. Brothers and sisters, Christ has loved his own and he has loved them to the end. And he has loved them by serving him in a way that they could have never, ever imagined. Oh, not just by washing their feet, which we'll talk about more extensively next week. But by living the life that they could not live and by dying the death that they deserved. Christ bearing their sins on his shoulders and and absorbing the wrath of God for his own, on behalf of his own, those who he loved perfectly, those whom he loved to the end. Christ rose from the dead, conquering once and for all sin, death and the grave. And if you repent and trust in Christ today, not tomorrow, not next week, not when you think you're ready today, right now. You will be saved. And this love that we have spoken about this morning is for you. And this sacrifice that we have spoken about this morning that Christ has given at the cross is for you. If you would only turn and trust in him for your salvation. I may be speaking to the choir this morning. But I encourage you to pass this truth along. That Christ has died for people who repent. And urge them to turn to Christ. I said in just a moment ago, you don't need another sermon or a song. 
to fire you up. What you should be doing every day is reminding yourself of the gospel. Reminding yourself of the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the perfect life, death and resurrection of Christ. The fact that we have been given the grace to to repent and believe. The cost is nothing compared to the reward. That alone, brothers and sisters, preach that to yourself every single day. And that'll be enough to get you up in the morning and to get you to go and gospel or evangelize the, the nations. Do not get cold in your love for Christ. You can't afford it. You can't afford it. Time is too short. Stop your inconsistency in church. Stop debating on whether or not you will be here. Stop letting little ailments prevent you from coming to church. Stop letting other functions prevent you from coming to church. Stop letting the world pull you away from Christ on a daily basis and stop thinking that Stop thinking that this grace is cheap and that you can have it anytime you want it. While you have light, walk in the light so that you may be sons of light. This is not a game. This too shall pass. Let's stand.